Hello and welcome to episode 232 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now on today's episode, I'm joined by an incredible music journalist. He's also an author and just a man of many talents. I have so much respect for him and I'm thrilled to announce that I'm joined by Ian Winwood. Ian is a music journalist who has worked for incredible publications like The Telegraph, The Guardian, Kerrang!, Rolling Stones, NME. He's been all over the world interviewing some of the biggest names in the business and he's also wrote some of the best books out there. And on today's interview, we're going to focus and talk all about his brand new book, which is called Bodies, Life and Death in Music. If you've ever been in a band, if you've ever been a fan of bands, read this book. It's one of the highest rated on Amazon. It's an absolute incredible purchase. And right now, you should go and buy it. Don't even listen to this episode. Go and buy it, read the book, and then come back and listen. Because honestly, the man is a genius and has lived and breathed everything. And for me, being a podcaster and wanting to get into the world of journalism, he is a huge influence on me. And I'm so glad of how today's interview turns out. And that will be coming up in just a couple of moments time. But before we get there, I always like to use the intro to touch base and talk about my last episode. And as it stands, this is my most downloaded episode this year. On episode 231, I was joined by Tim McElrath from the incredible Rise Against. I've had so many friends text me, WhatsApp me, people on Twitter DM me saying that this is their favourite interview. And do you know what? I think it might be mine for the year as well. Tim was unbelievable as a guest. So open, so honest and just a great guy. I loved every minute of it and really hope that our paths connect in the near future and we can record another episode for you guys at home. But as I said, today's episode is all about Ian Winwood, and I can't wait to get to it. So I think we should do that right now. So here's me and Ian talking all things music. Ian, thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Hello to all your listeners. Ian, what I'd like to do is give a listener who's tuning in for the first time, maybe, a trip down memory lane with you. And <laughs> tell me about when you were growing up. Tell me kind of those first bands that you went to see or records that you bought that made you love music. Um, yeah, I, well, the story of growing up, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two towns um, because I spent my formative years in, in Barnsley in the, in the People's Republic of South Yorkshire, uh, uh, which, is, which is, I guess, how I identify and I spent my teenage years um, as a result of um, the divorce of my parents uh, with my mum uh, in Buckingham, in obviously in Buckinghamshire, uh, and that didn't that didn't really have leave that much of a, of a of a mark on me, apart from apart from friends that I am still friends with, you know, decades later, and also crucially, it it it. it gave me, uh, it was within striking distance of, of London. Uh, and um, I, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like, you know, being in St. Albans or, or Watford or, or, or something like that, or, you know, Croydon. But, but it, 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 my mum was um, quite liberal parent. Uh, and I was quite a good child, I suppose. So she was willing to drive me to Milton Keynes train station, which is about a 25 minute drive. 
and I would board a train uh, to London and go and see concerts. The first concert I ever saw was actually with my mum when I was 14, and it was Dire Straits at the, at the Birmingham NEC. Nice. And it, was, and it was me. It was me that was the fan, not, not my mum. Uh, and I remember looking back that the album that they were touring was Brothers in Arms. And I remember being quite disappointed with that album. That, for anyone that, that's too young to remember, I mean, it, <laughs> it, it just sold colossal amounts of copies, you know, tens of millions of copies across the world. But I liked the two albums that preceded it, which were called Love Over Gold and, and Making Movies. I didn't imagine I'd be talking about Dire Straits, but I, I, I'm... That's I'm what really, I love, I'm, let it go and let it flow. Well, yeah, and I'm hoping to I'm hoping to make the point. And these albums, I always think that Making Movies, if Talking Heads had, had, had released Making Movies, the world would have lost, you know, the... the uh, the critical community would have lost its mind over it. It's a really cool kind of arty record, particularly the first side. And Love Over Gold, which only has five songs on it, you know, on a full-length LP, one of which is about 15 minutes long. And I liked those, uh, and I didn't really like the, the, you know, the more economical uh, blockbusting brothers in arms. So I think when I, I look back, I guess I was always kind of, Perhaps a slightly, a slightly strange child, and I don't think it's a it's a it's a, a massive surprise that I I became a music journalist. I, I, I sort of had a very close relationship to music. I'm trying to describe this, Stuart, without saying clearly I was uh, blessed with superior ears to my peers, but I, I certainly identified with kind of I guess more. Not necessarily the most obvious kinds of music. But anyway, uh, I, and I continued to go to shows with my mum. Me and my mum went to see Queen at Wembley Stadium. But I'd strike out on my own as well. And sometimes I'd go with friends. But if I couldn't get friends to go with me, I'd happily schlep to London, you know, on a Thursday night or a Sunday night to see bands that I didn't really like or didn't really know much about simply to go to a concert, you know, pretty rubbish metal bands that would play the Hammersmith Odeon and it was as it then was. And they weren't popular enough to play the Hammersmith Odeon. You know, you'd get there and only for anyone who's who hasn't been there, it's essentially a large cinema. And in fact it, it used to be a cinema. It's now the Hammersmith Apollo and it holds you know a few thousand people. Uh and you've got an enormous balcony and, 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 a lot, and an enormous stalls area. And they'd only fill the stalls. The entire balcony would be empty. And I'd go there. And I remember being there at one, one show. I think it was, it was, in fact, I don't think I know. It was Halloween and Overkill, neither of which I really greatly liked. Thinking, what am I, why am I here? What am I doing here? I don't care about either of these bands. Uh, so it was a question of getting to London and, and, and feeling like I was part of something, I suppose. But yeah, I wasted wasted a lot of time and money. Well, uh, you said this is at the age of 14, and correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it at the age of 14 you were already starting to do writing and even get some work with Kerrang? No, that's wrong. That's wrong. It took me it took me it took me years to get onto Kerrang. Okay. What had what had happened, Stu? Uh, when I say wasting money. 
Uh, I was are, you calling me st- are you calling me Stu? Stu? Why did I call you Stu? I'm not sure. My podcast could yeah, be called it... Stuart and Me if you want me to change it. But yeah, I know I'm calling you Stu because I had an email from a guy called Stu just before I came on. Can you? Is it any? Uh, if, I can if, edit it. It's fine. If, if Mark doesn't edit that out, it's a senior moment, Mark. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. Yeah, I was like literally at 10.59, Mark, I was answering an email from a guy named Stu and I got confused. So I beg, I, I'm, I'm really You're confused again as well because you're saying 10.59 and it's only 10.16 right now. 9.59. So nine, you, nine, you're losing the really plot. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so when I said, Mark, that, I, uh, that, I, that I was wasting money, I was at least in part wasting my own money because I, yeah. I had two. I had two jobs, uh, and and a, a, and a, actually sometimes pre-dawn, depending on the season. At, after school, I would clean a, a shop every, uh, five, five days a week after school, uh, and in, in uh, the shop was W H Smith. And in the morning, uh, sometimes before light, if it was winter, I'd get up at five o'clock. And uh, I would, it was my job to organize the paper rounds, 14 or 16 paper rounds for boys and girls uh, who would deliver all around Birkingham. It was my job to make sure that their rounds were sorted out, that they came in to deliver those rounds, organize cover for anyone that couldn't make it in. And then I'd have an hour or so uh, just to make sure there are any problems, at which point the manager of the shop would arrive uh, to get the shop ready to open, I would help him up with all the bundles of magazines that uh, that had come yeah. in. Uh, all the magazines that had come in, I'd already opened them up. Uh, so two things happened because of that job. It taught me very quickly, it taught me media literacy because I was able to have a look at all of the newspapers, which in, a, which in an age that was driven solely by television news and newspapers, if you only took one paper, then that was your... your viewpoint of the world we're all aware now of different different points of view i'm not sure that was the case then so that was very important and i'm the i'm the you know i'm from a mining family and this was the last days of the miners strike and 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 beyond so i knew that what the daily mail for example was saying about strike as it's known in my hometown um, was different from my experiences of going up to Barnsley, where the miners' strike started, and and just seeing what was kind of happening, you know, on the ground, speaking to people that my dad knew. My dad still worked in the mining industry, even though he was no longer a miner. He had been a miner. Uh, also, crucially, what happened, I happened upon this music magazine one day um, called Kerrang! And... Um, and I found my spiritual home, uh, and which is strange because the, the the bands that were being written about in the more established music papers, such as The Enemy and Sounds, were perhaps more to my taste. Kerrang! Was, was covering pretty rubbish, almost exclusively rubbish bands at that time. But there was something about the tone and the energy and the irreverence and sort of the underdog status of the magazine that I really, really viscerally identified with. And before I was able to lose interest in this, you know, kind of 
conveyor belt of rubbish that it was writing about, the music, loud music got better. And I think that it's important for anyone listening to this who thinks of Kerrang! as a metal mag. Um, of course, it does cover those bands, but Kerrang!, the name Kerrang!, is, is what we call an onomatopoeia. It, it, it sounds like the word, it, the word sounds like the thing that it yeah. describes. So slush, I always think of as a good onomatopoeia. And Kerrang! is the sound of a guitar struck with force. So, you know, when the Beastie Boys happened, they'd cover the Beastie Boys and they started covering punk rock and they started covering the kind of metal that I did, that I did like which was, you know, Metallica and that kind of uh, school of groups. Um, so very quickly, it, 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 it bent to my tastes, unwittingly bent to my taste. But what happened was when I was 14 and you make the decision that um, you, you're invited to have a think about what it is you would like to do with the rest of your life. My mum said to me, well, what, what have you thought about what you might like to do, you know, for a job when you leave school? Uh, and um, I said, yeah, I'd like to write for Kerrang. I didn't even say I wanted to be a music journalist. I'm not sure I knew, I'm not sure I was aware of that term. I said, yeah, I'd like to write for Kerrang. And she said to me, well, somebody does those jobs. I don't, I don't see why it shouldn't be you. And so obviously that was either fantastic parenting or deeply irresponsible parenting but it took me it took me if i was 14 at the time it took me a further 15 years to to land to land on planet kerrang yeah um but that was that was always my destination mark the thing i like about your writing is how honest you are um if you review bands you don't do the kind of pr job you're actually just saying your account of what you heard and what you think of the bands when I read some reviews, you can tell they're very um, biased because they've they're either friends with the band or the, the the publication wants them to have a glowing review. But you don't seem right. to care. You kind of listen to an album and write as if you're a fan listening to this album. And if it's not good, you'll justify why you said it isn't good. I remember. Well, thank you. I, I remember I mentioned this in my book. I had a look at a piece that I wrote from the very, very early days of my quote unquote career. And I interviewed Lane Staley, who was the singer uh, in a band called Alice in Chains, who at the time, this is 1993, and at the time, they were double platinum in the United States. Bands don't go double platinum anymore. That's two million sales and yeah. above. And it was sort of a Brixton Academy band in, in, the, in the UK. In fact, I'd seen them at the Brixton Academy. And I interviewed them at the Royal Garden Hotel in, in Kensington, which is a, a, a posh, nice hotel overlooking uh, Kensington Gardens. And... On the on the ride up in the elevator, so I would be twenty two, uh, and I in the ride up on <clears throat> on the ride up in the elevator, the the band's PR made it heavily suggested it to me that it, I would it would be better if I didn't ask them about drugs. Right. Now you could say that this is none of my business, but the album that they were promoting and touring is almost, it's just an album called Dirt. Is It's an incredible uh, album. Uh, but it's almost exclusively about the, the appeal of and the, and the dangers of drug use. Yeah. 
And it's worth mentioning for anyone that doesn't know that Lane Staley, that, that lifestyle killed Lane Staley yeah. and, and ruined his life pretty much from the moment that I had spoken to him. Things certainly did not get any better for him. Uh, and I remember riding up in that elevator thinking, no, I'm going to ignore that advice. I don't think that I... Oh, that 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 it, it was it was a strong suggestion. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and I remember. So I, I I reread this piece for the for the book, and I was I suppose uh, quite clear in what I thought music journalism should be. <clears throat> I'm not sure. I, I I was quite as my instincts were good, I think. I'm sounding very serious now and perhaps a bit pompous. But since you asked, I think the job, if the job means anything at all, it is to make the, the distance between what I say in private and what I am able to write in for, for, a, for a readership as slim as is humanly possible. Yeah. Uh, I remember uh, because the, it's and I, I never wanted to be friends with the bands. I still don't. I do have some exceptions, uh, but I'm not. I don't want to be. I'm not. I'm rock and roll adjacent. I don't work in the music industry. The music industry has never paid me. You know. So why should I do its work for them? Uh, the readers pay me because yeah. they're the ones. Especially then when when the only way you could hear an album, for example, was to buy it. And like you said, Mark, as a reader of Kerrang! as a teenager, I could tell who was lying to me. And I even knew the reasons why, because they wanted to be identified with a particular movement or they had their bands that they had access to and they considered themselves... But but that was that was just never for me. I remember just to wrap this this question up, and it still goes on. I, I, I remember being um, at a, a little listening party. The pandemic was swirling into town, uh, but everybody. It was strange to think back. So everybody's almost almost carried on until normal until the week before it was obvious that something terrible was happening and indeed was going to happen to an even greater degree. But in February 2020, I went to listen to a Biffy, uh, the, the, the new bit, the, what was then the new Biffy Clyro album, A Celebration of Endings yeah. at Warner Brothers. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that's one of the great British albums of, of the, the past 50 years for what that's worth. But we were talking about me and an editor, and uh, me and me and two editors were talking about the new Green Day, uh, the for, then forthcoming Green Day album, Father of All Motherfuckers. Even the title annoys me, uh, and I love 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 Green Day, but the uh, this uh, the album's a dog. It's it's just dreadful. Yeah. And we were all talking about how horrible the album was. Yet when the publication came out. That, that, that was edited by the, the one editor that I was talking to. It was so, the, the, the other editor, it wasn't a, a, a magazine that reviewed albums, but the editor who was the, the editor of the magazine that reviewed albums, saying how dreadful it was, saying how everyone at that magazine thought it was dreadful. The review came out and it was four out of five. 
And that's just unacceptable. It's yeah. unacceptable. And it's certainly unacceptable to me. Uh, so, yeah, so thank you. I'll take that as a compliment, Mark. I am indeed a pompous pain in the arse about that kind of thing. I liked your comment then about Biffy Clyro as well. For me, I've listened to them genuinely since Black and Sky, and I think Simon Neal is the best songwriter we have in this country. I think the lyrics he writes, the music he writes, the time signatures, the music he does with his two with the two brothers, Ben and James, right. I truly believe they're the best live band on the planet right now. Right, right. Yeah, I think I certainly think they're the best I think they're the best band in Britain. I think yeah, yeah definitely unbelievable band and mm -hmm. what i think uh it must be interesting is you put yourself out there so when you're writing these reviews or your books and everything everyone automatically then gets to know you but you don't know them so when you're so honest and so open what's it like then when you meet certain individuals or bands that you have written about is it awkward Do you have situations where you're like oh fucking hell like i wasn't that kind about you and now i'm in a situation where i've got to kind of try and be nice I have lost, uh, Mark, a little bit of the bloodlust that I used to have. Yeah. Um, I realise now, so in, in my book, Bodies, yeah, if you're writing over, the, over the, the span of the book, you have a lot of time to analyse in a way that you don't, in short form writing, that arrives at a very short deadline. And I realized that part of my DNA as a writer is that I am always kicking against something. Uh, and I am always trying to cause trouble, I guess. And sometimes I think I did it for its own sake. And there are bands doubtless that I have spoken unkindly about that didn't perhaps deserve it. Now that is a uh, that's a problem of control rather than uh, instinct. I think my instincts are, are, are quite good in that I don't as I you know I said in the last answer I, I don't want to be part of a gang. I don't want to be part of. I mean, I do want to be part of a gang, but I want to be a part of a gang of music journalists. Yeah. I don't. I don't. You know, if if, if for, here's a good example. If 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 I go on a tour, uh, and music journalists only ever go on, you know, for, on tour for two or three days. It's not like you know. You, yeah. You, you know, it's not like you're following Metallica around America for two months. Um, I am the only one there, again, that's not being paid to be there by the tour, you know, that's not earning money from the tour itself. And I'm the only one on there on the tour who doesn't really have a job apart from to speak to the band, which I could do anyway without being on the tour. And my work happens when I get home, when I write up, up the story. Uh have there been any? Um, I'm not sure I'm answering this question very satisfactorily. No, I'm loving it. Really, uh, I can't remember coming a cropper with anyone. No, to be, to be honest with you, uh, face to face. Um, I remember. I remember actually once I, I, I saw the Wild Hearts at. 
the forum up in Kentish Town, which is about a mile from where I'm, half a mile maybe from where I'm, from where I'm speaking to you now. And they were so terrible. They were so terrible that I gave them the kind of review that you only use in cases of extreme emergency. Yeah. Um, it was. It, 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 it was. It was contemptuous. I would say. And it was also, I would say, a, a, a good piece of writing. Uh, and I remember, see, so this was for Kerrang, and I remember seeing them at the at the subsequent Kerrang Awards and thinking, oh, and they're an extremely volatile band. They once smashed up the Kerrang office because of something someone else wrote about them in the news story. So this really could have gone either way. And... I actually got thanked for the review because it, 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 they viewed it as being a, a, a sharp reminder of, of what had gone wrong during that time and certainly that night. So that was a very surprising outcome. Um, but no, but again, that you know, it may be, Mark, that, that because I don't, you know, I don't really socialise with bands. I don't really, um, you know, hang, hang out with them. So no. that might be why that might be why I'm not in in a wheelchair or, uh, <laughs> or, or or blind in one eye, you know. So to keep on the in the zone and the kind of where we were, um, what I wanted to kind of get an idea of is you've now done almost thirty years of writing and telling your ways of the kind of experiences in the industry, and I suppose how do you keep on doing this for three decades and still feel inspired and have that passion inside you? That's a good question. I think because that's a really good question. I think Mark, because I write for different people now. Um, I still write for Kerrang! and I would hope to continue doing so because it's a, um, I guess it's a big part of my uh, psychological makeup. Um, but there's no doubt about it. Kerrang! is not in very good health at the moment. I mean, no. they hear that, they might sack me. Um, but there have been redundancies. It, it exists for the most part, with the, with the exception of occasional magazines. Um, it, it exists, it exists as, as, as a website. And like the NME.com, uh, it, um, it doesn't have much of a footprint in, in that regard. Um, so I'm now a, 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 a broadsheet, a famous broadsheet writer. Uh, Mark, I should, I should, not, when it's audio only, I should, I should make it more obvious that I'm making a joke now. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and, and when I started at Kerrang, uh, which was 2000, I would get away with murder in print. Uh, and, and sometimes as discussed, I abused that privilege i don't i don't think i knew i was doing it. I, I didn't do so in bad faith but looking back i was i was perhaps a bit trigger happy uh but i have the same amount of freedom 
at, at the Telegraph and, and the Times. Um, and it's strange writing for right-wing press because I'm not right-wing. Um, and I always add that caveat. But at the same time, I am given an extraordinary amount of freedom to, to write as, as ever I, uh, writing whichever way I please. Um, so that's sort of like a different gig for me. I've never, uh, I, I noticed at, uh, certainly in the, in the, in the 2010s that I was, PRs would request that I not interview their bigger bands. Um, this happened with My Chemical Romance. Uh, there, were, there are some other examples as well that, uh, that are, are um, slipping my mind. And Kerrang would just be okay with that. They'd allow themselves to be pushed around rather than saying, actually, no, that this is not how it works. Um, there's just no way that a broadsheet newspaper would put up with that. Um, what, what, what also happens, Mark, is that for the first time in, in my writing career, <clears throat> I'm no longer just the rock guy. Uh, when I was at Kerrang, when Kerrang was, you know, my, 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 my living wage, I'd do bits and bobs for uh, NME, uh, for Q or for Mojo. And I was headhunted by the NME once. And all of those places just viewed me as the rock guy because I'd come from Kerrang. Uh, and any music journalist worth their salt will listen to all different kinds of music, for one thing. And but at a, and at a broadsheet, at the broadsheet, that's no longer the case. So I, I'm, I'm sort of able to interview anyone. I mean, they don't say yes to all of my suggestions. I should make that clear. And I've only written a couple of things for the Times. I have a couple of more things to write for them. But certainly for the Telegraph, um, I've interviewed, you know, James Taylor and Billy Bragg and Paul Heaton and uh, Tal Wilkenfeld. And, all, you know, I'm, I'm trying to run the numbers in my head. Uh, so that's quite exciting. So being able to to say what it is you, that you'd like to say, uh, and 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 be allowed to do that, but and be actually be expected to do that. Uh, it, it, so that that sort of made it um, more exciting. I think if I was writing only for Kerrang, I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I would be able to to. to give you a glowing report card. Uh, also, um, I, I'm not sure I'm answering this question very well either, Mark, but let's go. Also, you know, I've, I've, you know I had a book published this year uh, to gallop across, you know, 107, uh, by about 113,000 words. Uh, I, I'm adding an extra chapter to, to the next, next edition of the book that I've written. The way that that book is written in terms of its technique uh, was a real breakthrough for me as a writer. So, in that, the, the, that, so that's a really long and not, I'm not sure, a particularly interesting answer. Mark, the short answer is 
that I, I, I love to write. In many ways, I'm never happier than when I'm doing so, especially when I finally hit a groove when I'm doing it. And it, it sort of feels like it's just, it sort of feels like I'm div divining for water, really, rather than writing that, if you want the truth of it. Uh, and that I have a palette now upon which to, to, to write that I never had before because I'm no longer pigeonholed. And I guess I'm just a bit more uh, legitimate, I suppose. Yeah. It feels slightly more legitimate, which is fine. It's okay being, and I still identify with the underdogs. I identify with underdog bands. Uh, and I, my part of my identification with Kerrang! was that it was an underdog magazine. Even when it was selling 110, 120,000 copies a week, it was still the underdog magazine. Uh, and similarly, even though Biffy Clyro headlining the O2 Arena here in London to 20,000 people, they're still an underdog yeah. band, if you see what I mean. And I very closely identify with that. But, uh, you know... As a man, you know, I'm in my early, uh, very early 50s now. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't be the scrappy underdog forever. So I guess, I guess I'm in my black album years. Amazing. And like has there been, and this is someone who does interviews myself, but has there been any interviews that you've perhaps you've gone there hoping it would go a certain way, but it's just been an absolute shit show. You've literally met someone and they've just been an arsehole and it's been hard work and it's made you just not want to do the interview. Not not by the end of the interview, no. Good one. Uh, I don't think, because my technique, in fact, I, I put this in an earlier draft of Bodies, but I cut it out because it, I couldn't make it, I couldn't make it, I couldn't make myself sound like anything other than a, a plonker <laughs> descri describing it. <clears throat> because I don't want to be friends with the band. Yeah, uh, I, I don't mind causing a great offence in interviews. Now, I don't go. I don't go in there doing that. I do like asking difficult questions. I really, I really, I really enjoy that. Uh, so, say you've got, say you've got, say you've got a thirty-minute interview slot, which is what I used to get, and yeah. I tend now, I tend now to get an hour on on account of being an extraordinarily famous literary sensation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you sort of, you're aware of the time. So you don't start with the question that might cause your interviewee to go storming out of the room. Yeah. But, it, but, if, if, but if it needs asking, it needs asking. It's just a question of placement. So you give them five minutes to sort of, imagine it's like, changing the barrel on a pump of beer you need a couple of pints before you get a pint yeah. that you can sell drink that's how i think of the first five minutes in the 30 minute interview doesn't have to be that way but when i interview someone and maybe you do this maybe you're doing this now although it's slightly different because it's a podcast but if it's a print interview i'm I, i'm listening to what they're saying and i'm thinking in my mind right i can use that i can use that as a quote Okay, I'm probably not going to use that as a quote, but I can use that as information that I've put in my own words. And or this is rubbish. This is boring. 
And if you get to, if it gets to sort of seven or eight minutes of rubbish or boring, or or, or or indeed them being difficult, more to the point, I just have to make something happen. It's my responsibility to make something happen. And if that involves causing a scene, then so be it, really, yeah. to be honest with you. I'll give you an example on my birthday uh Gosh, 20, 21 and a half years ago, my 30th birthday, I was in Los Angeles to interview uh, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, uh, who were kind of the kind of group that, that existed on the borderline between the enemy and Kerrang. Yeah, and I saw them support um, Oasis. Right. They, and we used to do, we do a lot of that. We used to do a lot of those bands. Uh, and that was great. I loved, I loved yeah. that. And, and and sorry if I've mentioned this. It was in Los Angeles. Yeah. And uh, and um, and I, we met them at the venue. I think they were they were supporting a dance band. It might have been Orbital that they were supporting, uh, or Spiritual. Anyway, uh, and um, and they were fine. They were lovely. We were all having a chat, and then we got on the tour bus, and the interview started. And I just could not get more than a sentence out of them. Uh, in response to to any question that I asked, it was just um, performative, kind of like Jesus and Ma Jesus and the Mary Chain, the Jesus and Mary Chain kind of kind of just di absolute disinterest uh, to to such an extent that 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 my photographer friend, who I travelled with a lot at that time. Uh, a god amongst men by the name of Paul Harris, who features in, in my book, um, I actually had to leave the bus because he found it so excruciating. And I was just thinking, this is, it's not, it's just not acceptable to go back to my editors and say, oh, I didn't really get anything out of them. So I, I just got, just became ruder and ruder and ruder and ruder and ruder to the point where <laughs> the, the they're, to the point where they're kind of because because they, they were performing, you see, they were they were performing an act because I, I I'd spoken to them before and they were and they were reasonable and articulate and talkative people, so it was an act for my tape recorder and to make life difficult for me, uh, and I just thought no no I'm not I'm not having this, and it, it honestly Mark reached a point where it, I was essentially saying. I don't see why anyone would listen to your music. It's it's just worthless. This is just <laughs> and 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 of course you know that that it's not worthless no. and, and it's certainly not worthless to them. So they sort of then snap out of it and something happens. That's what. Uh, so no no I, I no I I I I don't no they you know they don't always go in the way that you would like them to, uh, but that's fine as well. All that matters is that you get something that you can put on the page. That's that's a successful interview. And and don't write the headline before you get to the ballpark, if you see what I mean. Have you got a, if you kind of look back on your life and you're on This Is Your Life, what would be your favourite kind of achievement of an interview? Is there one that stands above all the others that you're just so proud of? I mean, there are I mean, there, there's probably a thousand interviews, yep. Mark, for me to me to for me to run through now. Oh, but there must gosh. be one that you always, if if you were given like a demo tape of your work, what would be your 
on your best of. Or maybe the one I, remember, I just enjoyed the most. Well, I remember interviewing the Beastie Boys in, in New York, uh, and they had been away for about five years. And this is a really good example, actually, of that first opening five-minute rule that I've got. And I just said, where have you been? You know, what's been going on just to get it open, get it, get it going. Uh, and it's worth, it's worth um, mentioning that I, I just adore the Beastie Boys. Yes. And, and in, a, in, a, in a rare example of me actually getting something right, I bought Paul's Boutique, their, their now greatly revered second album, on the day it came out, and I imagine, Mark, a lot of your listeners are too young to remember this, but at that point, the Beastie Boys were a laughing stock. This is in 1989. They were a laughing stock. And the album really, it was like it was almost like a, a vanilla ice album, people. That's yeah. how people regarded the Beastie Boys, which is remar remarkable to think back on. And I would say to people, you have to listen to this album. You have to listen to Paul's Boutique. And remember, you had to buy the damn thing to do that back then. And people would just laugh at me. They'd laugh at me. So anyway, going fast forwarding to 2004. Uh, and I said, oh, you know, where have you been? And, um, and they said, oh, yeah, we were, we were kidnapped by, uh, <laughs> by, by, Sasquatch, by, by Sasquatch. And... Um, Sasquatch is, is Bigfoot. We call it Bigfoot yeah. for anyone that doesn't know that. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's cool. And, and, and uh, he said, they said, yeah, we lived in a cave kidnapped by Sasquatch. And I said, oh, and did, did Sasquatch teach you anything? Did you learn anything from Sasquatch? And they said, yeah, yeah, he, he, taught, us how to, he taught us how to dance. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, okay, show me, show me. Uh, we were in this small little office, and in, in they kind of had a, 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 a like a business, like an operations center. I think it was in Chelsea. It was in Manhattan. Uh, and um, now they didn't all do it, but two of them did it: Mike D uh, and Adam uh, Adam Horowitz, Michael Diamond and Adam Horowitz got up. And if you've seen kind of the intergalactic video where they're kind of walking with yeah. their arms outstretched. But they're also doing beatbox noises with their mouth, <laughs> so and dancing. Now, Adam Yauch didn't do it, but he was in the room and he was he was clearly enjoying the experience of memory serves. But I remember, and I was sat down. I remember sitting there and thinking, "The Beastie Boys are dan the Beastie Boys are dancing for me. The Beastie Boys are dancing for me." Um, and they were just, I remember, I remember describing them that they were like a family of meerkats that had been raised on a, on a diet of methamphetamine and sunny delight. <laughs> <laughs> because they were, they, were, they, were, they were pretty much uncontrollable in the interview. And that's, that's, fine, with, that's fine with me. That's, that, I, can, I can roll with that. And it was an enormous amount of fun and I was an enor enormously pleased with the feature. So like, yeah, let's pick that one. Sorry, sorry, that took me a while to access. No, let, it's good, and I, I wish I'd been there or got to see it on video. It, it's not every day that the, the one of the world's coolest bands dances for you. So yeah, let's go for that. And one of my final questions is: there's going to be a lot of people that listen that maybe go to festivals or are trying 
online blogging or doing reviews and I see more and more people getting into it but what advice do you give to those people because it seems now that it's weird if someone doesn't have a podcast you know the world is so absolutely crazy on people doing live streaming and twitch accounts and podcasts but what advice do you give to people that want to do writing or you know interviewing and try and stand above the others that are out there you mean writing specifically mark yeah yeah uh well first of all write. yeah um As... i would i would say that it took me <clears throat> i mean i i behaved very foolishly in the 90s i behaved very foolishly until quite recently, actually. So I didn't, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't perhaps work on my craft and my technique as much as I should. Fortunately, I guess I had a, a, a level of, of natural talent that, that, that took me a, a, a certain distance. <clears throat> now, I told you that I was, um, I don't know why I've made this answer about me all of a sudden. Uh, I, 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 before we before we started this this interview, I told you that I was up till about three thirty reviewing a a, a a a music book for the Times. Yeah, uh, and by about sort of one o'clock, I had it at the point where it was acceptable. It would have been acceptable and accepted. I think by my editor at the Times. It might be that when we shut down this, I've got an email from said editor saying that it's completely unacceptable. <laughs> um, but I think, <clears throat> but still, I took that extra time to try and search for perfection, really. Yeah. So if you are serious about the writing, try and search for perfection. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm speaking to the purists, I'm speaking to people who approached it like I did. Yeah. If, if you are viewing writing as a way to become part of the scene uh, and then to maybe become a PR or, you know, to, to uh, have a relationship with someone in a band or, or, you know, whatever, just to be part of the music industry, <clears throat> I'm not, I don't really have any advice for you because that wasn't, that wasn't my motivation. <clears throat> but if you want to write write and take it seriously and read as well and try and work out what other writers have done. And I don't just mean other music journalists and steal occasionally if you want to, I've, I, you know, I've nicked, I've, I've, there's a sentence in, in my book, in my book bodies, which I just, I just thought that's a really great, it's from Roddy Doyle book and I just stole it. You know? Yep. I mean, it's only like a, it's what kills me. It's only a five word sentence, but I just nicked it. Um, <laughs> and then, and then um, have a think about what it is you want from this. When I started out, I, it was much more difficult to become a music journalist because the, the barriers between the public and the press were, were, were uh, codified. You know, if you wrote for a magazine, it took, it, things had to happen for you to write for a magazine. It's quite easy to become a music journalist of some description now. Uh, like you said, with blogs, particularly. Um, 
but work out what it is you want from it. And if it and, and if if what it is that you want from it is a living, then the only way you're going to get that, I think, is if your writing is clearly better than other people's because yeah. it's because it's just so very, very difficult to earn a living from this now. It was quite easy. When I started at Kerrang, I was very fortunate when I started at Kerrang, Mark, that very quickly they placed me on, on what we call a retainer, which means that <clears throat> I got paid whether I wrote or not. I got paid a set amount every week. And on the weeks that my my writing exceeded the financial amount of this retainer, they would pay me the difference. So, I mean, that... That kind of thing just doesn't exist. It's unheard of, isn't it? Oh, completely unheard of. Uh, you know, and that lasted for about ten years until I wrote my first book, and then I thought it would be the honourable to step away from the retainer. Um, however, there were still writers that were not on retainers, and I would say that there were a good six or seven of them who still were able to earn a living, um, pretty much from Kerrang, from what Kerrang gave them. Uh, and then there were other other music journalists, and this is this is perfectly a, a perfectly honourable honourable tradition as well. Who had who used it as a kind of part time job? They had full time jobs, so they couldn't you know go to San Francisco to interview Faith No More, for example. Yeah. Um, but they could, you know, go to the lead mill in Sheffield, or not even the lead mill, because that's a small place. They could go to the Cardiff Arena to, to review Manic Street, Manic yeah. Manic Street Previews uh, and, and, and do that. And that those are perfectly honourable traditions as well. So work out, write. It's all about the writing if, if you're like me, I guess. That sounds just so self-important, but it's true. Um, and work out what it is that you want from it. But it's it's tough out there. There's, there's no doubt about it. I don't want to sound discouraging. No, because it's honest and that's what we uh, need. People yeah, I, just... I, 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 I don't want to sound discouraging and I hope that I don't. Um, but speaking realistically, it's really, really tough out there um, to make a living as a music journalist, unless you're a famous broadsheet literary sensation. Like <laughs> uh, is, there yeah. a, is there a dream guests that you've always wished that you could have had time with that's still on that list like when I started podcasting I'm 220 episodes in I made a list of 10 names that would be my dream and I've done nine of them so like for me in person I'm like oh fucking brilliant like I've who's, done who's who's the last one who haven't you got Edgar Wright oh okay yeah you could, you could get him could you not uh it's difficult sometimes uh people that stand in the way on the yeah, gates yeah, yeah. are real arseholes uh, and real hard work and for some reason just I don't know I can get Anthony Hopkins I can get Kevin Smith but I can't get those keys to the gates for Edgar Wright and I just oh, want to talk to him but that, one day that's a shame um no I don't think so not in terms of an actual interview um my desert island artist the artist to whom I would listen to if I was told I could only ever listen to one artist ever again would doubtless be Elvis Costello yeah uh and actually I appeared on a, on an Elvis Costello uh appreciation podcast it was the first podcast I did in support of my book 
Uh, and I figured out then that I'm not sure that I do want to interview him, to be honest with you, because I think that doubtless I would try far too hard to impress upon him that I knew more perhaps than than most other writers who interviewed him. Not because I'm better researched or anything like that, just because he's my favorite artist. And I'm not I'm not sure I could I'm not sure I could cope with it if it went badly, to be honest with you. I mean perhaps I could. I've been doing this a long time. So there's so in the format of an actual interview, Mark, I I'm not sure I do want to speak to Elvis Costello. But if I were, for example, in some kind of fantasy parallel universe, if I was invited to have dinner with Elvis Costello, for example, in that kind of, you know, where there was no, because there's a power imbalance in, a, in, a, in an interview. And I think that my, <laughs> my, um, Technique as an interviewer, certainly in the in the in the break glass in case of emergency, uh, part of my mind is that I just don't care about that power imbalance. I don't care. I'm not. I'm not. I, 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 they're not doing me a favor by no. speaking to me. Uh, it's strange that you said Elvis Costello, right? Because. Yeah. I've, I, I'm going to be a sound ignorant now and I'm not trying to be, but um, there's so much music in the world and everyone tells me certain artists you should also listen to. So everyone always says, listen to Rolling Stones, listen to Beatles, listen to Elvis Costello, all these people. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't get ever around to it. You just don't no. ever listen to these artists. But what I do, and I'll be asking you the question in a minute on the podcast, every guest that's ever been on for five years always chooses the last piece of music that's played at the very end of the podcast. And I did a Clerks free special this week and I had Jeff who plays Randall in the film. Right. And he, he chose Peace, Love and Understanding uh, by Elvis Costello as his final piece of music or What's So Funny About, you know, that. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that's the very first time in my life I've heard Elvis Costello, which sounds crazy because I'm 40 years old, but I fucking loved it. And I was like, this is awesome. So I'm, oh, okay. now, I'm now starting to think, right, where do I start? Like, where do I dive in on someone who's had so much music out and such a legacy? That's strange. Weirdly, that's not even an Elvis Costello. That's not even Elvis Costello's song. It's, no, but I just love know. the sound and everything about it and the vocals. And it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, where to start? start uh, I'll tell you privately. I mean, just yeah. just dive in, basically. Anything. Maybe uh, just on a, like a, a playlist of all hits, so I can just listen to everything. Yeah, actually, you know what? Start with start with. Um, st I'm going to pick three albums from the earlier period. Uh, do this year? No, do Armed for? Oh my god, this is impossible. Do uh, Imperial Bedroom. Uh, do this year's model and do no do imperial bedroom do armed forces and do uh, blood and chocolate okay uh, and that sort of the the, early, the earlier period those I'm literally read. going I'm I'm doing imperial now so I can then take it with me when I'm on my drive okay imperial bedrooms it, it, it's 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 a it's a masterpiece. I don't like the second song. I don't like Tears Before Bedtime. Right. But that's that's that for me is the bear in mind there's fifteen songs on the album. Yeah. 
that's not a bad hit rate. Yeah, I'm not I'm not wildly keen on Tears Before Bedtime. But all the others are great. Yeah, all the others are great. And and if you listen to the drumming on the first track, Beyond Belief, Pete Thomas, who's one of the world's great drummers, uh, he had been up all night uh, carousing. It was recorded at Abbey Road uh, here in London, and he'd been up all night carousing. He told me this personally, forgive the name drop. Uh, he'd been up all night carousing, as I've now said for three times, Elvis not impressed with this behavior because they, they were recording at Abbey Road. It's not cheap. Said, you need to record this. You need to do this. You need to get this right. It's it's such an impossibly difficult drum part. And he nailed it in a single take. So think, <laughs> of, that. think of that when you listen to Beyond Belief, the opening track. He, a, 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 a drunk, sleep deprived drummer nailed that drum take in a single take. Yeah. And my final question then is, what would you love to be your song today? It can be any song by any band to basically outro this interview we've done. I mean, for God's sake, Mark, you could have given me a heads up. On nope, it. I put every person on the spot on the well, night. Well, you've, you, you've sort of spooked me now because um, uh, someone had already put, chosen Elvis Costello. And that was only two episodes ago, so... So I can't, yeah. you know what I mean? I've got to, so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I just, oh, I don't know. Let me have a quick look at my phone here. Oh, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll do the song that I would like to have played at my funeral. And then Ooh, it's nice. on the record. Uh, and we're going to have a song by ZZ Top. Nice. Called, called K Lastimar. Uh, and I can't remember the album that it's from. Rhythmine. No, not Rhythmine. It's not from Rhythmine. Uh, hang on a second. I'll look it up. Do you want me to look it up or is that important? No, go for it. I want you to. It's okay, good. Okay, all right. Give me a minute. I'm not very good at using phones or technology. Uh, also, you know, you asked me about um, my uh, advice to people that, that if you can't use, very, if you're not very good at technology, writing is a good thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I could do that. Yeah, it's Mescalaro. It's from the Mescalaro album, and it's called Que Lastimar. And as best I understand it, it's it's not even in it, the lyrics aren't even English. As best I understand it, is it is a famous Mexican uh, kind of popular folk song. But the the skill with which they play the song is is something to behold. Incredible. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and we finally just kind of scraped the surface today. But um, anyone that's listening right now, I want them to go out there and buy the book Bodies, uh, Life and Death in Music, because genuinely it's, it's, it's an amazing book. And like everything, now I want to go back and listen to your other stuff, uh, especially the stuff on the punk stuff and the offspring. Is it, is it Smash something? Is that the... Smash, yeah. yeah. Smash was my it's not, Smash isn't as well written as Bodies. I don't mean to, to discourage people from buying my books, but I had a look at it recently and it's like, oh man, this, this writing is not quite as good as I am these days. <laughs> Which I suppose is a good thing. It'd be bad if you think, oh God, I can't, I can't write as well as that anymore. But uh, uh, maybe, yeah. maybe I'll come down south and we'll have a pint and we'll sit and talk That'd again. That'd be lovely. Yeah. That'd be lovely, Mark. Uh, I really appreciate your time coming on today. It's it's genuinely uh, meant a lot. And I think there's a lost art of lost conversations and too many people just want a 10-minute quick interview and I just it doesn't even get warmed up by that point. No, God, you know what I mean? I could, I could like you, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the amazing Ian Rinwood. 
And as I said at the start of today's interview, he's someone that I really admire. I look up to. I've been very, very influenced by him. And it was an honour to have him on the podcast. It was so easy to talk to him. And I think we could talk for 10, maybe 20 hours. So I hope we can do another episode in the very near future. As I've also mentioned on today's episode quite a lot, you should go and check out his book. It's available now. You need to just basically go on Amazon and type in Ian Minwood. And his first book that will come up is called Bodies, Life and Death in Music. And just treat yourself. You will not regret it. And when you have and you've bought it and you've read it and you've fell in love, make sure you tweet me or Facebook me and let me know. Because this is why I do the podcast, to bring you new albums, new books or new films. And hopefully, if you take something away and absolutely love it, then I've done my job well. If you've really enjoyed today's episode, all I ask is that you share it. It costs nothing to do, and on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, it's literally the click of a couple of buttons. A retweet, a share, or put it on your stories. It really goes a long way. And if you've really enjoyed today's episode, I do have a Patreon account. All the money that you guys put into that goes right back into the podcast. It allows me to go out there, record more interviews for you guys at home, allows me to travel, host the podcast on so many different directories, and it really goes a long way. And to say thank you, thanks to my good friends at Richer Sounds, I have some amazing prizes each and every month just to basically say thanks for the support. You'll also get a badge as soon as you sign up, stickers, and some exclusive episodes starting in November for Patreons only. It's going to be wild, I can't wait to share these episodes with you, and they'll be exclusive just for Patreons. All the links are on markandme.com that I've mentioned today, and I really do appreciate all the support. I'll be back in only a few days' time with a brand new episode, and I've said this to a lot of my close friends this week, I've recorded about 14 episodes in the last 10 days, and I truly believe it's my best work I've ever done. That's not me being arrogant, because I never like my own podcasts, I listen back and I cringe, but these interviews, there's something magical about them, I'm on such a good run, and I can't wait to share them. So until then, look after yourself, Take care, buy yourself that book, and I'll speak to you all very soon. Y nosotros los pobres borrachos, nadie nos quiere coger. Nuestro corazón no es tan malo, pero no tenemos mujer. Qué lástima, qué lástima, qué lástima, qué lástima, qué lástima. Nosotros tenemos cervezas, también tenemos tiempo. Importante tener pocos pesos, pero mi suerte es mala siempre. Qué lástima, qué lástima, qué lástima. Qué lastima, qué lastima.